Well, good morning. It is such a blessing to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, so I don't forget and get in trouble with the other pastors and the Pillar Network. I'm supposed to really make a big deal about you going to this conference. So uh, make sure you do use that QR code that has been lovingly put on the front of your bulletin this morning. And uh, you can use that to, to register for the conference. Uh, I can tell you that I think we have like 17 going from Seaford. I don't know if we're the church that's in last or not, but uh, um, I would love for you to beat Seaford, all right? I would love for you to have more coming from Placosan than, than Seaford. Really, we just want to see uh, lots of folks there. We have over 200 that have registered for the event, and it's the first time we've done it, so we're really happy about that and uh, just thankful for, for next weekend ahead of time. I think that it's going to be wonderful. Phil Newton and Mike McKinley are both wonderful men of God and certainly equipped to come and talk to us about building a disciple-making culture inside of our churches. So I really want to encourage you to be a part of that. I also want to tell you just how much of a joy it is to stand in this pulpit to know that uh, your pastor, Hobson, uh, has preached so many sermons in it. Uh, I love that man. Uh, you have such a good group of elders here at this church, and, uh, and, and Pastor Hobson is really, really special. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I know you love him, but last November, I was at the SBCV conference and uh, SBCV homecoming, which they have every November, and there was a group of guys that were sitting up on a balcony, kind of like the second uh, story you have here. And I saw them sitting up there at this church that we were at, uh, First Baptist Roanoke, big church, you know, bigger than, than, than church I pastor, uh, much bigger building than this. And it's almost like being in a shopping mall. So you're trying to find somebody you can spend some time with. And I see this group of guys, and I knew Nathan Cecil, the pastor from Fox Hill Road Baptist. And I said, well, I'm just going to go up there. And I uh, went up to that balcony and I sat down and they were having a conversation about whether or not it is right for churches to annex other churches and then to essentially say, you're part of us now, you're under our brand. And then for those churches to not really be autonomous, right, but to have to answer to the mother church. And Hobson leaned forward and said something along the lines of, I don't just think it's unwise, I think it's sinful. And I thought, Wow. I didn't know we had guys in SBCV who talked like that. i got to be around these guys. I said, these, these are the guys I want to run with. And I started to go to the pillar meetings in January, and I just want to tell you that the immense amount of wisdom, godliness, holiness, righteousness, and love for the Lord that exists in those rooms when those meetings happen, it is astounding. It is astounding. And uh, I knew that I had found eagles when I found these men, men like your pastor, and I wanted to fly with eagles not hang around with pigeons. So uh, God bless these men, and we are so thankful at Seaford Baptist to have joined up with Pillar Network and to officially be a partner church with you all. So with that said, Acts 9 is where we will be at this morning. I want to ask you, have you ever really been so hungry, and then somebody starts describing food, and they send you into kind of an emotional place, right? Because you are so hungry and that, that their words about food that they're planning to eat or that they already eat just kind of sets you off, stirs up your appetite uh, to, to the point that you feel like you can't even control it. You're just going crazy. Uh, maybe you've been, you know, holding out all day. I'm not going to eat. We've got an anniversary dinner with the wife tonight. You're at work. It's three o'clock. You're looking. It's like two and a half more hours. I'm going to go to Texas Roadhouse. I'm going to eat seven rolls. Uh, I'm going all in tonight. You've saved up all your calories 
And then some coworker starts talking about the steak that he had the night before on his grill and the butter that he had on top of it and the corn on the side and all the stuff that went along with it and the dessert afterward. And you were undone by his description of his food because you were so hungry. Some of you, you're hungry now, right? Because this magical thing happens to you every Sunday morning where you get so much more hungry during this hour than you do any other time during the week. And so even now, as I've just mentioned the word steak, you are undone. Luke kind of does this to us spiritually with his description of the church in Acts 9, verse 31. He gives us a status check on the church, and as he does it, he speaks in a way that should cause your spiritual appetite to flare up. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you long to see Pocosin Baptist Church fortified? Do you long to see the people of God here at this location stand in strength as the church militant on the earth, accomplishing her mission to make disciples, doing what Jason just prayed about, witnessing to a loveless world through her love for one another, walking in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, serving the Lord with gladness, making good use of the time. If these are things that you desire, you really desire, well, then Luke is going to make you more hungry this morning. Do you long to see your church multiply, reaching her neighbors? Do you long to see her calling the wayfaring strangers of Pocosin home through the light of the gospel? Do you long to see your number added to in the Lord's time? Churches planted out of this place in the Lord's time. If these things are your desire, Luke will deepen those desires with this one verse of scripture today. My hope is the Lord will use his word to do that. In this text, we have Luke checking in on the church. He he gives us these little reports summarizing what is happening in the life of the church at the moment. For example, at the end of Acts 2, you get this beautiful summary where the early church in her infancy is described. She is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The people of the church are devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. They are devoting themselves to prayer. They hold all things in common. They're selling off possessions and belongings, distributing the goods as any have need within the local church. They worship together. They are hospitable, opening their lives and their homes to one another. Luke says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, in Acts 2.47, day by day, those who are being saved. And so it's a status update that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 2, and things are going well with the church. Day by day, the number is being added to. And you get another one of these status updates in Acts 9.31. And it's the eighth one in the book of Acts thus far. And it comes as a bit of a concluding statement on everything that occurs from the fallout of Stephen's martyrdom at the end of Acts 7 all the way to this point here in Acts 9, verse 31. So I'll read the verse. I know it's already been read. Let me read it again for us. Just one verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's start with the setting that Acts 9.31 is taking place in. Luke says that the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. 
If you read Acts, up to this point in the book of Acts, the word church is always referred to Christians who are gathering in local congregations, but now Luke is using the word differently. He's talking about the entirety of the Christian community in this region. All of those who were dispersed in the heated persecution that followed the death of Stephen. Persecution, by the way, that was led by Saul. He's speaking about the universal church, the Catholic church, if you will. And when I say Catholic, don't get too excited thinking what sort of Baptist has the Pillar Network sent to us here. Here's Jonathan Lehman giving us an alternate definition of the word Catholic, one that I think is important for us to recover. He says, most people associate the word Catholic with the Roman Catholic Church. Yet when used with a little c, the word simply means worldwide or universal. This is why Protestants use the Nicene Creed to affirm their belief in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. It's a theological way, really, for Luke to speak and talk about the church. Because what he is recognizing is that the church has been gathered out of the world, and though she is expressed in local congregations, like this one, like Seaford Baptists, she is still one church. She is one spiritual body spread out over Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And so this is one of the reasons why we have been so thankful to join up with the Pillar Network uh, at Seaford Baptist. It's a blessing to know we are a part of the larger body of Christ. And to not compete with other churches, which seems maniacal and insane but to joyfully build the kingdom with other congregations, knowing we're all working for the same kingdom. We're all working for the same prince who rules that kingdom. We're not in competition, but we are in cooperation. We should not have partitions between us. We should have partnership. And so praise God that we have that. Praise God that we are one church spread out over the region. Notice that this church in the region is at peace. It's a spiritual peace because there's no peace that you ever experience as a Christian that is not spiritual, right? We recognize that any peace we have in our lives, it is a gift from God to us, be it physical, be it an inner peace, whatever. And so we always return thanksgiving to God for any level of peace we experience by his grace. But here, I think Luke is referring mainly to physical peace. There's a very physical peace being experienced by the church during a time of reprieve here. In Acts 7, you have a man named Stephen who is one of the deacon prototypes set apart for that work in the Jerusalem church in Acts 6 to take care of the, uh, the food distribution uh, controversy that had broken out between Greek-speaking Jewish widows and uh, Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. And so Acts, one of these men who had been set aside, he's an amazing guy, he's doing all sorts of awesome work for the Lord, and he gets brought before this ruling council, and he really puts the council on trial. He's there on trial for words that he has said about the law, words he has said about the temple, words he has said about the Lord Jesus Christ, but he flips it around and he puts the council on trial, and he walks them down their sordid history of rejecting and abusing and killing the prophets of God, all the way up to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And he says, you are stiff-necked and your hearts are uncircumcised, which causes them to put their fingers in their ears and to run at him and to drag him outside the city and to stone him to death. 
And the men who were throwing those heavy stones down on our brother Stephen, they laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. After this happens, there's a great persecution that rises up in Jerusalem. It's like a tidal wave that crashes down on the church, and it scatters the church into all of the surrounding regions that we just discussed. Acts 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Of course, this persecution is only serving to fulfill the words of Jesus. He told the disciples, you go to Jerusalem, you wait there, and you're going to be my witnesses once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this persecution that was meant for destruction is actually being used by God for his own glorious purpose as he disperses his disciples, his witnesses, his church into the region. This intense persecution carries on in large part due to the efforts of that man named Saul. Acts 8.3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in Acts 9.1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. But on the road to Damascus, this man is converted. He, he has a revelation in the sense that Jesus reveals himself to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It's me. It's the one you're persecuting. And so he becomes a Christian. And about a three-year period of time passes, and things settle down. The church is about six years on from Pentecost at this point. She's still an adolescent church. She's a young church. She's been hunted. But after this time of being hunted, she's finally able to take a breath. And isn't God good to do this? Isn't God good to give us a reprieve from the heat of persecution, from the unrelenting pressures of persecution? When the world turns up the volume against the church, it can get bad, but God is always good to give us a little break here and there. When Satan is hunting the people of God, seeking to destroy her in the wilderness in the book of Revelation, what happens? And by the way, I know that your pastor and I share the same views in the book of Revelation, so I say this without any fear, at least from him later on. I don't know about you all, and you can email him about what I'm about to say. <laughs> Revelation 12, verse 13, And when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That's Jesus. She came from the woman who are the people of God, right? She has been... Uh, Jesus is born from the line of the people of God. But the woman, people of God, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent, that's Satan, into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And so in the heat of being hunted by the enemy, God gives the church the two wings of the great eagle so she can fly from that serpent. This is what he does. He is good to provide relief and to provide rescue. 
It's also a reminder to us that in this age of witness, Satan's authority is limited and that the deceiver will not prevail against the church of the Lord. He will bark and he will bite and he will send seething sinners with swords to inspire all sorts of irate indignation against the bride of the Lord. But at the end of the day, Satan will not win. And even along the way, God is good to give us a reprieve until the ultimate day of victory comes. He's good to give his church little times of peace. The question for the church in this region was, what would they do with their time of peace? Do they rest on their accomplishments thus far, take a little break? I mean, they've accomplished a lot. Church has only been going on for about six years. You've got thousands of people involved. I mean, take a sabbatical here. Did they disperse and say, well, that was insane? We got a little break. They're not trying to kill us anymore. Maybe we ought to break up. Once you go back to fishing, you go back to selling in the marketplace, enough with all this. Did they use their time of peace for selfish purposes? Of course, the answer to these questions is no, no, and no. They did not use their circumstantial peace for any of that. They used it to do two things that Luke tells us about. One, they are fortified in the fear of the Lord. And two, they are multiplying in the comfort and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And these two teaching points is what I'll give the rest of our time to. First of all, we look at how the church uses this time of peace in order to be edified. Luke says they're being built up, built up. He's talking about the church as a building there. It's not the only place in the New Testament we see this happen. In Ephesians 2, Paul says in the church, the blood of Christ has brought Jew and Gentile near to God and into fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The dividing wall of hostility that existed between them has now been torn down. There is one new man who has been uh, created in place of the two. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Gentiles who were far off, they have the peace of the gospel preached to them. The Jews who were near, because they had the law, they had the prophets, they have the peace of the gospel preached to them. And now Jew and Gentile are one man, both having access to the one spirit, uh, both having access in one spirit to the Father. And then listen to what Paul says right after that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so Paul speaks of the church as a family home for the citizens of the kingdom. It's a home that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself is the cornerstone, meaning all the other stones are set with Christ as the reference point. He's the one that determines the building structure. He's the one that holds it all together. He's the one that grows it into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter also talks about the church as a building in his first pastoral letter. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Stones, if any of you got the pet rock when you were in, in the 70s, you got duped into that deal, a little, little rock in the box, right? It's your new pet. That pet didn't really play fetch with you, did it? It didn't do a whole lot uh, because it's a rock. Rocks, stones, are lifeless, mute, hard objects. When Jesus is described as the cornerstone, he is not that. He is not lifeless, right? He, he is not mute. No, he is a living stone, meaning he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the life of men. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the lamb who in Revelation is slain but standing because he is alive. So Jesus, who is the cornerstone, is a living stone. And he has imparted life to sinners. And so those who have had his life imparted to them by his saving grace are also living stones. And he is building us up into a spiritual house so that we would be a priesthood offering our lives to God as a living sacrifice. And six years into the New Testament church, they are serious about this business. Individually, they're serious. They're edified. They're built up. They're fortified. To a man, to a woman, they're experiencing what Paul prays over the Ephesians in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And that's what's being experienced by these individuals in the community. Their, their inner man, their inner woman's being built up. And as they are built up as individuals, of course, they're built up as a people. That overflows into the community. And I think we would all want this for our churches. We would all want our churches to be edified. I, I pray regularly for my folks over at Seaford, Lord, you would build them up that they, would, that they would grow into the stature of Christ. Pastor Kenny DeAria over at, at Reformation Christian Fellowship, another one of our Pillar Network churches, always says that he's going to pastor until Christ is formed in his people. So Christ is being formed in the people of the church, and, and, and this is what we want. This is what we desire. But it does not come about in a vacuum. This thing that pastors pray for, this thing that I hope you are hungry for, for your church, that the church should be built up, that the church should be fortified, doesn't happen on accident. Here's Eckhard Schnabel on this. He says, the way of life of the followers of Jesus in which they make progress is the fear of the Lord. These brothers and sisters are walking in the fear of the Lord. They are advancing and progressing in the fear of the Lord. So why are they fortified? Why are they built up and edified? Because they are advancing in the fear of God. And so teaching point number one, if you're filling in blanks there in your bulletin, this will be the first point. The church that walks in the fear of the Lord will be fortified. The church that walks in the fear of the Lord will be fortified. Of course, the next question we got to ask is, well, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean for us to fear the Lord? And the answer to the question begins with God himself. Not only because he's the one we fear, but because God has chosen to be known by the name fear. Genesis 31, verse 42. If the God of my father 
the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Why is God called the fear of Isaac? Here's John Bunyan on this. He says, And indeed, God may well be called the fear of his people, not only because they have, by his grace, made him the object of their fear, but because of the dread and terrible majesty that is in him. See, God has taken the word fear as his own name because he wants us all to know just how majestic he is. He wants us all to know just how awesome he is as the Lord and the judge of all the earth, the Lord and the judge of everyone who lives on the earth. And that compels us to set him apart as a holy God. Isaiah 8, verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your, what? Your fear. And let him be your dread. When we heed, God's revelation of himself, and we rightly understand him as the one who is the sovereign ruler of the universe, as the maker of all things, who is excellent in all of his judgments, that should bring us to a place of fear before God. However, that fear is not one where you view God as pure threat. That is the way that a slave looks at a cruel master. They fear that master is pure threat. We don't look at God this way. No, we fear God, not as pure threat, but with a childlike reverence. The way a son would tremble before a good father. This sort of fear is a new covenant promise. This is a gospel promise for the people of God. And they shall be my people, Jeremiah says, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is a part of God's glorious purpose in the salvation of your soul that you would fear Him forever and not turn from Him. And He made you for this. He made you to fear Him. He wants you to fear him. This is why I think people get on roller coasters. I'm serious. So I think people jump out of planes with parachutes on their backs. I, I don't do that. I will ride a roller coaster, but I will not be jumping out of any planes, Lord willing. Unless it's like some crazy mission endeavor or something at some point. But no, I can't ever imagine that. But why do people seek thrills in this way? It's because their heart has been made by God to fear and to fear him. And he wants us to come and to tremble before him as a son trembles before a good father. And we got to think about this rightly. Realistically, I think it's easy for us to think of reverence purely in terms of, well, God's got every right to crush me. I'm a sinner. I live on his daily grace. If he removes his daily grace from me, my lungs will just cave in. I'll just die spiritually and physically. I'm I am completely at the mercy of God and he should just smite me and the only reason he doesn't is because Jesus died for me. And so God the Father every day wakes up disappointed that he can't crush me because Jesus died for me. This isn't the way that we're supposed to fear God. This isn't the way we're supposed to look at God. I was blessed, not all of you maybe have this experience, but in God's providence I was blessed with a really, really kind and good father, Mike Howard Sr. I saw him yesterday. I didn't grow up fearing Mike Coward. 
because I knew he could discipline me at any moment. Oh, man, Dad could crush me. At any moment, Dad could just take his belt off and lay into me if he wanted. In fact, the only reason he doesn't is because I've got his last name and Mom stops him from doing it. Right? No. I was blessed, like I said, with a really great earthly father. I revered him. I had a childlike fear of him that persists to this day. But that fear, which drove me to want to please him with my obedience, it had to do with his character. This was a good father. And because he was a good father, I feared him. I didn't want to displease my good father. I wanted to express my reverence for him in loving obedience. And so for us, we fear God not because we're a second away from him crushing us, but because he didn't crush us. We fear him because he crushed his son instead. And again, this is all new covenant promises that are made to you, foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. One chapter later from that Jeremiah 32 promise about how uh, the, the people of God will fear him forever, he says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me, and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble. Because of all the what? All the punishment? All the discipline? No, because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. He is a good, promise-keeping God. He blesses us and He prospers us in Jesus Christ. He builds us up and He cares for our needs and He provides everything that is necessary for what He has called us to do. He is good and we fear Him for his goodness. You say, but yeah, if I keep sinning against him, he is going to punish me, right? He is going to he's going to do something, right? Well, he'll discipline you. He will. But even his discipline of you as his child comes from the heart of a good father. You think about bad discipline, right? That we see in earthly sinful fathers, wrongful discipline, discipline that is done from a place not of righteous anger, but a place of unrighteous wrath. The discipline of God's not rooted in any of that. The discipline of God is rooted in goodness and love. And he seeks to separate you from sin and draw you closer to himself. He is good. And we must respond to his goodness and to his grace with fear and trembling. This childlike reverence for him is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Foolish people are going to do whatever they want to do. Now you walk out here today, you see somebody, you know, just like dancing in the middle of traffic. You walk up to them and say, man, what are you doing? You can't do this. You're going to get hit by a car. And they say, I got to dance. Like, That's a fool, right? You're like, I can't. I'm not, not going to get hit, so I'm just going to go ahead and leave. And good luck, right? That's, a fool's going to do what a fool's going to do, no matter what you try to say to him. But wise people revere the fear of Isaac and all of his beautiful purity and all of his goodness, and they surrender themselves to his will, and they aim to please him in everything that they do. And when people fear the Lord like this, they will be built up 
in his knowledge. Let's keep going. Second point, you see the church here is not just using the peace afforded to them as a time to be built up. It's also a time in which they are increasing in their number. So it's not just something that's happening in them spiritually, but there is an actual adding to their number. They are multiplying, and this is a good thing. Churches want this. We want to multiply. We want to see people come to Christ Enter the household of God where they'll be discipled and grow into the stature of Christ. I don't have to tell you that. You have lost the leader on pretty much everything around here, right? Like when I think of Pocosin Baptist Church, I think of Pocosin Baptist Church lost to leader. And we all want that. We're fishers of men. We want to see people go from lost to being leaders. Numbers are not always a sign of health. That's true. They could be. They're not always. Sometimes you go to the doctor. You don't want to see high numbers there. Right? But at the end of the day, whatever the baptism statistics may say, whatever the denominational reports may say, we are in this. You and I are in this. Pastor Hobson's in this for conversions to the glory of God. That's what we want to see. We want to see souls go from death to life. I want you to think of the the most reputable, worst sinner in all of Pocosin. And I know they're there. I got pulled aside by one brother before I even left our church this morning. He said, don't let those Bull Islanders push you around this morning, okay? (laughs) I I, I know you got some rough characters around here, just like we've got some rough crab necks down in Seaford. And those are the people we want to see saved. People like Saul. We want to see them saved. But like the edification of the church, the multiplication of the church does not happen in a vacuum. And Luke tells us that this happens to the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so, teaching point number two, and the final one this morning, the church that walks in the comfort of the Spirit will be multiplied. The church that walks in the comfort of the Spirit will be multiplied. When Luke says the comfort of the Spirit, it could be just as easily translated as the encouragement of the Spirit. And the Greek word that is used is a form of the same word that Jesus uses to speak of the promise of the coming Spirit in John 14 and in John 16. In John 14, verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The helper, the comforter, the encourager will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance everything that has been said to them. Do you ever remember sometimes, or you ever think sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're like, how did, how did Matthew remember all this stuff that Jesus said? Well, aside from them using one another's writings as, as sources, we know that part of the reason Matthew was able to remember, and we know that part of the reason John was able to remember is because the Holy Spirit taught them all things and brought to remembrance everything that had been said. He encouraged and comforted them in this way. John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I remember when I first read that as a Christian, book of John's the first book I ever read as a Christian. I had just gotten saved, started reading through John, got to that point. I said, What? It is to your advantage that you go away. We don't want you to go away. We want you to stay. But then he explains it. He says, for if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the encourager will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Why did Jesus have to go away from his disciples? To die for them? To satisfy the Father's wrath? To rise again? To ascend to the right hand of the Father? Like if, if these things don't happen, the disciples will not have spiritual cleansing, right? The promises of the Old Testament are left unfulfilled. The new covenant does not come. And then the Spirit of God, who's dwelling in believers as part of the new covenant promise, He does not come. This would be devastating because it's through the Spirit of the Lord that the disciples will bear witness to the Gospel. It's the Spirit who will continue to guide them into all truth after Jesus leaves them. The disciples would be left in the lone, uh, alone in the world. They would have no Savior and they would have no Spirit. They would be left without the comfort and the encouragement of the Spirit of God. And so Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. What specifically is the comfort and the encouragement of the Spirit of God? And why is it that it somehow spurs the church on toward this increase, this multiplication? John Owen helps us with this. He says, the foundation of all our communion with the Holy Ghost consists in his mission. So your entire relationship with the Holy Spirit, I hope you have one. If you don't, I would encourage you to turn from your sin, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And one of the promises that is there, like I just talked about, is that when you turn from your sin, you put your trust in Christ, he will give you his spirit to dwell in you. If you're a Christian, you know that. You have the spirit dwelling in you. And the foundation of your entire relationship with him, John Owen says, consists in his mission or sending to be our comforter by Jesus Christ. Meaning you can't understand your relationship with the Holy Spirit apart from His purpose to be your comforter and your encourager. And that drives home how important all this is. So what is this comfort? What is this encouragement He gives? Well, first of all, He gives us the comfort of being sons, of sonship. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Charles Spurgeon said, a thousand sources of joy are opened in that one blessing of adoption. A thousand sources of joy. We could sit here the rest of the afternoon. We won't do it because as we talked about at the beginning, you're ready to go eat. But we could sit here all afternoon and just talk about all the sources of joy that our adoption has opened up. It's the spirit who Paul calls the spirit of adoption. He's the one that compels us to call God our Father. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you ever not wanted to pray because you're in sin? You know, you're in that moment where you're like, I've had this conversation with him too many times. I'm just, I'm not even going to bring it to him. 
I'll just live in it. I deserve it. I just live in the little den of iniquity I've created. I'm not even going to try to talk to Jesus. I'm not even going to try to talk to God. I know I can't. There's no way. And then you hear that voice. The Spirit of God saying to you, No, He is your Father. Run to Him. His Son died for you. Run to Him. And you're reminded of the Gospel and you come to Him again and you receive that forgiveness again. That is the comfort and the encouragement of the Spirit. Going, hey, hey, hey. No, no, no. You're not going to live in that sin. You're a child of God. Get out. He's your Father. He's good. Go to Him. Secondly, the Spirit gives us hope. He doesn't just remind us that we're sons. He gives us hope. Hope is the virtue that enables you to say, I don't just believe that the guy to my right and the woman to my left is a son. I believe I'm a son. Hope is that Christian virtue that enables us to believe the gospel for ourselves. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The God of hope will fill you with joy and peace as you believe, so that by the Spirit's power your hope will abound. Wonderful news. Because hope is the enemy of despair. The Spirit will drive the despair of this world and the despair of sin away with His comforting hope. Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Comfort of the Spirit enables you to wait with patience, to wait with hope. And lastly, certainly not least, the Spirit gives us His abiding, living presence. Like He's just with us and in us at all times. And it's obvious when we're praying, and our prayers themselves are faltering. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever get to that place again where you're going, I just don't know if I can even pray. I don't even know if I've got the words for this. I'm too angry. I'm too sad. The Spirit will not leave you alone. You were born again by His power, and He is not going to abandon you. And this is evident when we are praying. Even when we don't know what to pray, He is there to be an intercessor for us, to intercede, to stand in the gap, to do as Paul says, intercede with groanings too deep for words. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin pointed out that this means we have an intercessor in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, and we have an intercessor in our hearts, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit. So what is the connection between all of this comfort and encouragement that the Spirit provides and the multiplication that's taking place in the early church? Well, if we go back to Jesus' initial instructions that I mentioned, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Who were they to wait on? The Spirit. The Comforter, the Encourager. Because until they have the Spirit, they're not able to be witnesses. And that is not just because the Spirit empowers the preaching of the Word, but the Spirit empowers the preacher of the Word. And the Spirit opens the ears of the ones being preached to. So what happens is the Spirit comes to a Christian and says, Hey, you're a son. 
You're going to get the inheritance. You belong to the household of God. You're a co-heir. The Christian is then empowered. I got to go spread the news. I got to tell everybody about this. It's a pearl of great price. I'll even suffer for it because I'm a co-heir. My inheritance isn't in this world. My eyes are on the crown of glory. And then your heart becomes hopeful. You're invigorated by the confidence you have in God's power to keep his promises. So you go out into the world and you preach with that hope, pressing on, preaching often. Then you come back at night, worn down. Man, I'm worn out. I don't even know if I can pray. There's the Spirit to help you in prayer, the same one that spurred you toward witness, right? The confusion and the melancholy that stood in the way of sweet fellowship with Him, it starts to dissipate. And feeling strengthened by His presence and His help, you're ready to go and do the work of disciple-making again. You see how the encouragement of the Spirit helps on multiplication in the church. It's the advocacy of the Spirit providing a great advantage for believers on the mission field. It's the comfort of the Spirit bringing a consolation to the tattered fishermen who are weary from the work of trolling for souls. It's the encouragement of the Spirit that brings an energy to the downtrodden witness jolting us back to faithfulness. The early church grew because they were dependent on the Spirit. That's the only way that multiplication can be real, and it's the only way it can be healthy. As we close up, Luke checks in on the young church here for the eighth time. She's fortified. She's multiplying. And what I want to say to you as we close is she's not wasting her time of peace. And my question to you is, what will we do with ours? And I know some of you think I'm crazy for saying that because you're like, have you watched TV? Like, do you see what's happening in Russia? Do you see what's going on with this, the, the horrors in Israel? Do you see the, the stuff that's going on in our own country? You might think, how can you say we live in a time of peace? Well, nobody's come through that door with guns this morning trying to harm us for our Christian faith. When church ends today, if you want to come down to, to, to my mission field... Yorktown Beach, you can spend the whole day handing out tracts down there, just handing out gospel tracts. You might get disrespected by somebody. They might call you a name, but you're not getting arrested. Even in situations where Christians are getting in trouble for open-air preaching in this country, typically they're detained and released later on without any formal charges. You and I live... In a time, whatever you may think of the politicians of our time and the, the, the values of our time, for, for however long we've got it, we live in a time where despite all the shifting ideologies and all the sin in the world, we are able to preach peacefully in this country. So what are we going to do with our time of peace? Are we going to settle for a little old-time religion? Come get in your hour plus on Sunday, head back to the world, pretty much live like the rest of our lost neighbors. I hope you hunger for more than that. Will we try to build the name of our, our church? Let's make our brand great. Make Pocosin Baptist great again. It's already great. You don't need to make it great again. No, I hope you have higher aims than that here. Than just to make it all about PBC. I hope that it's higher than that. I know it is. We must be like our brothers and sisters in 39 AD. 
walking in the fear of the Lord, fortified as a living holy temple, walking in the comfort of the Spirit, multiplying as an encouraged people. We can't waste this. And so I want to encourage you to pray for these things to be so. The regional aspect of this text is the reason I preached it this morning. See, for Baptists as a part of the Pillar Network, with you all, Pocosin, Carrollton Baptist, Nanceman River Baptist, Fox Hill Road Baptist, Reformation Christian Fellowship, Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg. How glorious would it be for people to say of our churches in the Hampton Roads region. So throughout all the Pillar Network Hampton Roads, the church had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. What a sweet testimony that would be. What a sweet report it would be to give. Are you hungry for these things? Pray for them. Has Luke caused your appetite to run wild this morning? Pray for these things to be so in your church. Father, I pray that our hunger for you would drive us to a place where we fear you, Lord. We come before you trembling, not because we think you're going to crush us like some sort of angry, irritated father, but because you are good in your character, proven once and for all in the sending of your son. And so, Lord, I pray we would tremble and rejoice before you as a good father, and that because of that, God, we would be fortified, we'd be built up, we'd be edified. I pray that for Seaford, I pray that for Pocosin, and Lord, I pray that we would also multiply in number because of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to know we are sons and, and to give us a great hope that your living presence with us each and every day, God, would compel us to go out and to share the good news with the world that is around us. And I pray that Pocosin would see hordes of people here in this area come to Christ, go from lost to leader. Lord, glorify yourself through this church in this way. Glorify yourself through Seaford Baptist in this way and through all of our pillar churches in this way, we ask. For your name's sake, not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.